Our text for this morning is from James chapter 2, if you'd turn there in your Bibles. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. James 2 and verses 8 to 13. You'll find that on page 1208 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. That's page 1208. Now our text in James today presents us with uh, uh, two contrasting perspectives. And we're very familiar with these contrasting perspectives from James because we've seen James do that often. In fact, it's characteristic of his letter because it is like a New Testament proverb in that it often brings a contrast of different perspectives in order to teach a particular truth. Now, in our text today, we find a couple of perspectives that illuminate the difference between things of honor and things of error. And we see so much of this in our world today. Our president, President Trump, obviously is one who would be in the news often as the leader of one of the greatest countries in the free world and one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful. And yet, he is often in much more than perhaps we're normally used to seeing. His involvement in social media adds to some of this. And there is a continual discussion going on regarding the man who is leading our country. And that discussion often centers on the things which he says and the things which he does. And are they things which are things of honor or are they things which are of error? And so there is this back and forth discussion and there are varying components from different sides of the media. And for those of us out there trying to understand some of the things that are happening, it's very difficult to discern and try and get to the bottom of some of these details. And really the ultimate question comes down to are his decisions and discussions and efforts those which are lawful and supporting those of our country or are they not as others would contend? And difficult for us to understand these two things. And our text today brings that same question into mind. And it's important because this question of honor or error is not just simply one that is being thrown about with regards to the consideration of our president and his actions. Obviously, it happens with regards to politics of every ilk. But we see also questions regarding our military, regarding police. And these same type of discussions come up regarding businessmen, and it can be anyone. And the reality of this discussion is one that is always before us. Well, our text addresses these same concepts, and this is where our title comes from this morning. Actions of honor or error. Actions of honor or error. I want to read the whole section beginning in verse 1 because this is all one section of Scripture from James 2, 1 down to 13. And then we'll talk a little bit about these final verses. James 2, beginning in verse 1, if you'd follow along in your Bibles. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world 
to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he shall become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Actions of honor or error. Obviously, from verses 8 to 13, there is a strong emphasis on law in our text. We see the word law occurring in every one of our verses from verses 8 to 13, with the exception of the concluding verse 13. So there is this strong consideration of law, much like we were previously discussing. But our text has a different focus of law than what might be legal or illegal for the president or for anyone else for that matter. In fact, the focus on law changes throughout our text. So he's bringing us a particular perspective of what the law is. You see that in each of the three points there on your outline, the law of the king, the law of the transgressor, and the law of liberty. So there are these three laws that are brought before us as we consider them. Let's go to our first point in verse 8, the law of the king. The law of the king. Verse 8 begins, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law. He begins with that if statement, and we've seen that also in James many times. And when he does this, he is conveying to us that there is a conditional statement that he's setting up. That if this is true, then something else will be the result of that. And not only is there a condition, and we'll see that condition develop within our verse, but there is also that second word, however, if, however. And he's saying that this is a contrast to what we've just discussed. He's just been discussing with us in verses 1 to 7 the error of partiality. Even said that those who act with prejudice in such fashion are doing so with evil intent. So he's made some very strong statements. But now we have a contrast and a transition. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law. Now, as we consider this idea of royal law and this conditional statement, we understand these conditions very well. It's like thinking for ourselves, well, if, as I remember my father often telling me when I first had gotten my driver's license, that if I drive the car long enough near empty, then I am eventually going to run out of gas. It was just going to be a consequence of that action. Well, the same type of condition is what James is setting up for us in our text today. 
Only now he begins, if you are fulfilling the royal law. Well, this literal translation of that phrase, royal law, because that's new to us. And so what does he mean when he says that? Well, the, the literal understanding of that phrase is the law of the king. The law of the king. Now, you'll notice that as well in the footnotes there in your Bibles for verse 8. That what this royal law is, is the law of the king. So this law of the king is very different from our introduction. It's not talking about a, a, legal introduction, a legal law or a law of a country, but this is a particular law of a king, and yet it is not like the king's edict that we often see in Scripture. If you're familiar, and I know that many of you are, with the Old Testament stories, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's edict, which we could consider a royal law. When he built the 90-foot gold statue that was six feet wide, and he made an edict, a royal law, that everyone would bow down and worship the statue. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down and worship, they were guilty of violating that edict. And we know that that was often the case for the king. We also had in the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus. And he had made several edicts. The first was that he wasn't happy with his wife, so he made an edict that all of the young ladies in the kingdom were to be brought to him so he could choose a new king. That was a royal edict, a royal law. He later made one when Haman came to him and complained that the Jews were not worshiping as they should. And so he made another divine edict that all of the Jews could be killed on a particular day. As he discovered Haman's plan and Mordecai comes back, there is a follow-up royal edict that says, no, that the Jews can defend themselves. Well, those are all royal laws. Those are all edicts. But yet we find out that that's not what's being talked about here. Because this law, although it is a royal law, although it is the law of the king, it is according to Scripture. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures. So the law of the king is the law of God. This is the law of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it is that which is according to God's word, the Bible. So we have a much higher and much more exalted level of law than we have been talking about all along yet this morning. And notice too that it says you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures. The you there is a plural, second person plural reference. So it is all of you. It is everyone who's considered, it is all y'all that he is bringing this consideration to. It's encompassing of everyone. It is not individualistic. And that will become very important in just a moment. And as he talks about this, he says that you are fulfilling the royal law. That word fulfilling means to complete. It means to do something with an emphasis on the end. As you are ab abiding, as you are fulfilling this royal law, you are looking to the point of completion with respect to what this law entails. It's very important as we recognize this whole first clause. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures. 
So if you are in obedience to God's word and to whatever this royal law is, then you are doing something very different if, however, contrasting to what you've just seen in the first seven verses. So this royal law is being connected to the prejudice and the partiality that he has been discussing in verses 1 through 7. And then we see the definition of that law next in verse 8. And that definition is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the first thing that we need to note about this royal law that's now been defined for us and shown as it to exactly what it is, is we also have a change of person. It's no longer all y'all out there, but it is you individually. It is a first person reference. Now he is drawing in every one of his hearers specifically and pointing to them and saying, you are the ones who must fulfill this royal law. And that royal law is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we're very familiar with this commandment. It is what we often consider the second great commandment. We have the great commission and we have the great command. And actually that great command is in two parts. We see it back in Mark chapter 12. If you want to turn back there in your Bibles, back to Mark chapter 12 and verse 30 is where this text occurs. Mark describes for us and summarizes the Lord's teaching as the Lord is speaking to the disciples and as he is doing so, there is a scribe that comes to him and, and they are arguing uh, amongst one another. And he comes and Jesus answers in verse 29 as they question him as to what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus answered, the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema. It is one of the most common commands that every Jewish person would have to learn as the smallest of children. If you are here as a young person and you are of the age of four or five years old, you would already have had to have memorized Deuteronomy chapter 6, which begins in this fashion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then he goes on, of course, with the great commandment, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. So this is a further affirmation of that greatest command. And yet the Lord doesn't stop there by indicating that we must love God with all that we are. But immediately following in Mark 12, 31 is where our text comes from. And he says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So these become the greatest commandments. Now the second part of this commandment doesn't come from Deuteronomy 6. It's actually in the book of Leviticus. We find that second part in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And as it says, love your neighbor, the context of Leviticus is speaking about other people within the nation of Israel. 
You can go back on your own and look into that text in Leviticus 19, and you'll note that that whole context is talking about the interpersonal relationships of the Jewish people one with another. But things change a little bit as we've seen often with our lords bringing these old covenant commands into the present, don't they? Well, we see that change right here because as he says, love your neighbor as yourself, we know what the next question from the scribe was, don't we? Who is my neighbor? And of course, the Lord goes on to discuss the good Samaritan. And he says that my neighbor is anyone whom I come in contact with. And that beautiful parable about the Samaritan man who was rejected by the Jews is the one who actually cares for the Jewish man that's hurt when the priest walks around and the Levite walks around him on the road and leave him for dead. So the neighbor that he's speaking about is anyone and everyone we're to come in contact with. Of course, the Lord further emphasizes this command when he says to love your enemy as yourself. He prefaces that by saying, you've heard it said that you shall love one another. I say that you shall love your enemy. And so we see this broadening in this royal law that he brings to us back in the book of James to understand that we must love everyone that we're coming to. Now, the same teaching is also in Matthew 22. And we find a similar form of the second great commandment, very near where our scripture reading was this morning, in Mark chapter 7. In fact, let me read for you Mark chapter 7 and verse 12. A, a similar expansion of this second great commandment to Love your neighbor as yourself. You'll know it, and we often hear it referred to as the golden rule. Matthew 7 and verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, James' favorite reference is the book of Matthew and particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen him go to it over and over again. And here we have him again going to Matthew seven twelve to express to us that we are to do unto others as we would like them to do unto us. And of course, that again is broad and it references everyone that we might come in contact with. Well, we understand that, don't we? We understand what it means to do unto our neighbor as we would like him to do to us and to not do as we would not want him to do. We don't go cut our grass and then take it over to the back corner of the fence and say, you know, there's this area that he just kind of leaves. It's behind his shed and it's kind of a junk pile and it's full of leaves. I'll just dump my grass here because it's way easier. We would not do that because we certainly would not want him to do that to us. We understand on the contrary what it looks like to do good to our neighbor. When his garbage can is sitting out on the curb for a couple of days and appears like he might be gone, we go take it and we take it back to the house and we put it around the corner so anyone who might be looking with evil intent at their home would say, oh, well, you know, they wouldn't recognize that they're gone. When the garage door's up and there's no cars around, we hopefully would have the relationship. We could call our neighbor and say, hey, did you miss closing your garage door or did you leave it open for a reason? And if so, I'll come help. 
You see, these are the kind of things that we do as neighbors to one another, as we show and do good to them as we would like them to do to us. And this is that royal law. This is the expression and outworking of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And then James concludes the verse with a moral assessment. This being the then part of the if-then clause. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scriptures, you are doing well. You are doing well. This is honorable. This is right. This is the assessment of the law of the king. The king who gives that law tells us that to do well is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And all of this is in contrast to the whole component of showing preference to the rich man and of showing prejudice and favoritism. And he says, no, that's not how we're to do it. We're to show love for everyone. And that is the royal law. That is the law of the king, which is completely contrary to what we've seen in the previous verses. And per our title, these are actions of honor. These are the things that all men ought be doing, and this is the law of the king. Well, our second point is the other side of our title. Instead of actions of honor, our next verse takes us into actions of error in verse 9. Actions of error. And to our second point, which is the law of the transgressor. The law of the transgressor. This is confirmed in the beginning of verse 9 where it says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. And the structure shows us that there is a purposeful effort towards this partiality. This is not an accidental effort, but rather this is the same evil motive that we saw described back in verses 1 to 7. This is a, 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 pers- a purposeful effort to move forward with partiality. And that is exactly what is designated as sin. That showing partiality. The sin comes out of a lack of love. Referenced in verse 9. The choir sang this morning about that law of love. That's just what we were talking about in verse 9. The royal law. The law of the king. That you will love one another as you love yourself. This is the same component. Only now it is completely lacking. There is no love. And now instead they are committing sin by showing partiality instead of love. And again, That sin coming because there is no act of love. The word partiality is referencing back to the prejudice and the bias of the first seven verses. Namely, that favoring the rich. And that word showing partiality in verse 9, it is the same word that we see back in verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. That is the noun form of the word here in our verse, in verse 9, we have the verb form of showing partiality. 
And as we saw in verse 1, this word translated personal favoritism is a plural word. So he's talking about not just one prejudice. He's not just talking about a social prejudice in showing partiality to the rich over the poor. He is covering every type of prejudice. He's covering every type of partiality. He's talking about gender prejudice, where we might consider either women or men one above the other. He is talking about ethnic partiality, where we might consider one ethnicity above another, or any other partial or prejudiced position that we might have. He's saying that all of these are wrong. And not just, again, favoring the rich, but any in general. And we saw back in verse 1, what was the result of that? That one who would do so is actually denying the image of God. Denying that God has made all people in his image. For how could we consider that all people were equal and somehow consider ourselves higher than another? To do so is to say that God's image is not in that person, but obviously is in me. Not only is it denying the image of God, but it is contrary to our faith. We talked about all of that back in verse 1. You can go back and listen to that message. And now this showing partiality is described of an action of error because it is sin. It is actually an action that is evil. And again, we've seen that very assessment brought forward back in verse 4. Making distinctions among yourselves, you become judges with evil motives. And now that evil is being called out for what it is. It is sin. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. And one commentator notes so beautifully, this is not a trifling fault, but it is a foul travesty. This is a horrific offense. This is not a minor situation. And it is deliberate and premeditated action which is worked at. Now we don't see that as clearly in our verse, but it says if you show partiality, you are committing sin. The literal phrase in the Greek that talks about you are committing sin says sin you are working at. It uses the word work, ergomai, where we get our English word ergonomics. You are sin you are working. So it's not just that this is a passive example, but you are focusing, you are putting effort forward, you are deliberately trying to exercise this prejudice. And it is almost an unfathomable condition that such would be going on. And yet that's exactly what we see happening. And in this sin of prejudice, it goes on to tell us that one is convicted by the law as a transgressor. Convicted by the law as a transgressor. Remember we mentioned how there is this legal focus that runs through our text and each of our points indicating that the word convicted has that legal origin. It means that evidence has been brought forward, that you have been weighed before that evidence, and the judge has convicted you in light of that. 
that your efforts are clear, they are ongoing, they are purposeful, and this partiality which you're showing is there in a sin by which you are convicted under the law as a transgressor. Now that word transgressor is a unique word in the Bible. It's only used five times. We see it actually used in three different books of the Bible. We see it in Romans chapter 2, two times. We see it in Galatians chapter 2, one time. And we see it in James chapter 2, two times. So kind of the twos there. Romans 2, Galatians 2, and James 2. Actually, Romans 2, 25 and 27. Galatians 2, 18. And here in verse 9 and verse 11 of James. And nowhere else does this word transgressor appear. But every time it's used, it's connected with the law. The law is here a different law than we saw. This law is speaking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses as it is often termed. Again, this is slightly different than the royal law which we just looked at in verse 8. Instead that of that law of the king which was a summation of the law of love, this reference to the law is the Pentateuch. And tells us all that the Jews would have been fastidious to try and obey in those five, first five books of the Bible. And that they expanded them into the Mishnah, into the Torah. And they developed over 600 commands to try to put a fence, and they called it such, a fence around the law of Moses. So that no one would get close to the fence without understanding that they were in danger of breaking one of these laws. So he speaks here of the Pentateuch. We further know that this is the Pentateuch because in verses 9, 10, and 11 in your Bibles, you'll notice that the footnote shows that the word law is capitalized, the capital L, showing that he is specifically referencing the law of Moses. And a transgressor is, by definition, a lawbreaker. It is one who disobeys as a manner of habit. He is known as one who violates God's law. Now, there are several biblical words that describe for us what it means to be disobedient or to, to commit a transgression. And it's important to know and to understand these distinctions. Some words describe disobeying a person as opposed to disobeying a law. Obviously, a law is put together by a, a culmination of people, so it is a more serious offense than disobeying a person, assuming that person is not the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Some of these words distinguish intentional disobedience from accidental disobedience. That, too, is a, an important thing for us to understand. And some show a repeated activity, that you are continually repeating that transgression or that disobedience. Well, the transgression of verse 9 is one who routinely breaks God's law and as such is repeated prejudice. And for that, he is convicted. The judge has brought the evidence forward, has waited out before him, and has designated that he is guilty. And with that guilty verdict, we see that brought forward for us in verse 10 and 11 that go on to illustrate this violation. 
Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Verse 10 removes any argument that one may keep most of the laws, but you're okay if you just violate the smaller ones. No, that, that's not going to fly at all. Violation of any of the laws is not a small thing. We, we might think that we can keep most of them, but it won't be such a big deal if I just violate this one law. Well, this one in verse 10 is described as keeping the law as a whole. That, that doesn't mean that he kept every law, but rather he looked at the broad scope of the law of the Pentateuch, of the book of Moses, the law of Moses, and he said, I am seeking to keep this. In general, I am pursuing these commands and I'm seeking to be obedient to them. And yet, although he sought that, and had a general obedience, he stumbles. Now, I don't know whether it's the size of my feet or what it is, but stumbling is something I can do in almost any venue. I find myself tripping over carpet in bare feet, with sandals, with dress shoes, with cowboy boots. I can stumble in anything. And when I stumble, I'm not trying to do it, obviously. Sometimes that stumbling turns into a fall with my tremendous coordination. And obviously, I'm not trying to do that. Nor is this individual. The stumbling that he's speaking about is something that is unexpected. He didn't seek to do it. It's not on purpose. It just happens. Yet, even though it is an accident, he is still guilty of the whole law. So he's bringing a nuance down. We saw the transgressor in verse 9 was one who repeatedly and purposefully violated the law. This one just stumbles. But as he does so, he yet still becomes guilty of the whole law. Now this doesn't mean that he violated every law, of course. Just this accidental, just this stumble, just this misstep. And yet he is still guilty per verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Guilty literally means under the power of. Under the power of. So his guilt has brought condemnation upon him under the power of the law. So as one who is even stumbled in one point... He has become guilty under the power of the whole law. It's telling us very clearly that one cannot choose part of God's law to his liking and break another. As commentator Hebert notes, to break the corner of a pane of glass is no different than to smash the whole panel out with a baseball bat. It is yet still every bit as broken. And this is exactly what we're being shown here. Our obedience cannot be that which is selective. Or we cannot think that we will not incur judgment if we're seeking to live under this law and yet stumble in one point. Verse 11 illustrates this principle by using adultery and murder. 
These two violations of the Ten Commandments are also, of course, violations of the royal law. You cannot be one who is loving and commit either of those two heinous offenses. And of course, we are reminded that as James brings these two offenses forward, as he has previously already in this great epistle, that he's not just speaking about the physical act, but that he's speaking about the redefined act that Jesus has brought forward in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where he has said that the one who commits murder is guilty before the court, but so also is the one who is angry with his brother liable before the court. Therein the Lord has paralleled anger and murder. And he has not just said that the one who commits adultery is guilty, but the one who looks at a woman with lust in her heart. And therein the very look and and heart condition has resulted in as much guilt as if this horrific offense had occurred. So as James brings these two forward in verse 11, he is comparing the heinousness of what's being described in partiality. These are chosen to show and to deepen the blackness of partiality and the horror and offense that it is to God, as one commentator notes. And it's not because all sin receives equal punishment. It's not that murder and adultery and prejudice are all on the same plane and will be judged by God equally. Different offenses have different punishments which will result. But as he just said back in verse 10, we are guilty of the whole law. Every sin that is committed makes us culpable and guilty before God. Whatever it may be, how small it may be, even a stumbling offense makes us guilty before God. All sin is that which will incur the eternal wrath of God. And the one who violates any of those Old Testament laws is guilty under the power of that law. We understand that everyone, as Romans tells us, is guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none of us, beloved, that are not sinners before a holy and righteous God. There is not one of us who does not sin every day from the youngest in the room to the oldest. And it is only as we understand that sin as an offense against a holy God which brings the full weight and the full wrath of God's law upon the disobedient sinner that we recognize how dangerous even a stumble is. And therein we must realize that our only hope, beloved, is to turn to Christ he is the only one who can provide forgiveness from this wrath, from this stumbling, from this sin that we do each and every day. And so as we consider the law of the transgressor, it is the one who shows partiality, who works at committing this sin and this evil deed, and even in his stumbling is as guilty as one who commits murder or adultery. Well, this is the law of the transgressor, and it is followed by our third point, the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Look at verse 12 with me. So speak and so act 
as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. James reintroduces for us here this phrase, law of liberty. We saw it back in chapter 1 and verse 25. If you want to look back in your Bibles to verse 25 of chapter 1. It says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Here we see a little more definition of the law of liberty. It is the perfect law. It is the law of God. It is the law of the scripture. And it is this law by which men will be judged. We elaborated much on that verse, and you can go back and see how all of this connects back to the gospel back in that section on James 1.25. But in essence, this is the law of the new covenant. And this is totally different than the law of the transgressor. Now, there are, but both laws are from God, But now in the new covenant, now in the law of liberty, those that have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are empowered by his spirit to obey. God has taken our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He has washed us in clean water. He has written his word on our hearts so that we may obey it. It's not our work. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah describe both of these in the beautiful description of this new covenant. It's very different than our old covenant law or the law of the transgressor, the law of Moses. But again, not so much different in the content of the law as the ability to fulfill it. The Jewish people, we wonder, well, how could they do that? How could they keep blowing it? I mean, they saw the Lord. They saw God Almighty. They saw the Shekinah glory. It it led them through the wilderness. It was a, a pillar of fire by night, for goodness sake. What was that like? Can you imagine? It was a pillar of cloud by day that would settle over the camp. I love the spring. And as the fall gets here and we start to get a little of the fog back in the morning. I love it. It's so beautiful. I used to love to drive in off the island and see that fog just blanketing the trees. That was the Shekinah glory over the camp. And then it would lift up and it was the sign that they should go. And they saw the Red Sea parted. And they saw the miracles of Egypt. And how did they blow it? Because they did not have the new covenant law. They did not have the power of God residing in them. And even though we have that power, we yet still too can fall. So this is the law of liberty. And it isn't liberty or freedom from the law. It's not like, okay, we can just throw the law away. It doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about it. Not at all. Jesus came to fulfill the New Testament law, not to abolish it. And yes, it has been fulfilled, but it isn't that we have this freedom or to be free from God's commands. It's rather that we are driven internally by his spirit to desire to obey it. 
a desire to show and to respond to the amazing love that God has given us in opening our eyes and to do so in the way that we live our very lives and that we are indeed, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us, living sacrifices, holy and devoted to him. And thus we're emphatically commanded at the beginning of verse 12, so speak and so act. Now these are commands. He could have just put speak and act. But he adds this emphatic pronoun so to the beginning. So speak and so act. So be motivated. Understand this amazing blessing. And therein live this out with all that you are. And when he says speak, he's not talking about some rote words. It's not like I know what to say and I can give the pat Sunday school answer. No, it is that all that comes out of us, all that bubbles out of us is brought forth in order to honor God, in order to live according to this law of liberty. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. As those who are judged. This phrase is telling us that this judgment is sure. It is coming. But this is not the judgment of condemnation. This is not God coming to his children to slap them on the hand and say, oh, you should have done this. Oh, you should have done that. Like a legalistic father. This is the father coming in judgment at the Bema seat to give reward to his children. To reward us for what he has given us the power to do. Amazing. How does that happen? Who Who comes up with that? You know, the scripture even says, what do you expect the slave to do when he comes in? Do you ask him to sit down so someone else can make him the meal? No, that's his job is to go and do that. But not with God. That is not God's perspective at all. Rather, God is the one who gives us these incredible and amazing blessings and all for things which he has done. This gift is beyond our consideration. And this describes an action of honor from our title and, our, and a parallel to our first point, the law of the king. The, the negative side for this command of obedience is in verse 13. And we again see a contrast as he switches from verse 12 to 13 where it says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now we again switch from actions of honor to those actions of error. And merciless judgment is that which is described. No longer that of the Bema seat. This is not the reward. Now he is switched to the idea of punitive discipline. Judgment will be merciless on the one who has shown no mercy. This is what awaits the one who has not been merciful. He has removed himself from the mercy of God because he has shown no mercy to anyone else. Beloved, mercy is an expression of our new redeemed life. When we were apart from Christ, we did not know mercy because of our self-centeredness. We were all about us. We were not considered about another person. We were only concerned about our own good. 
Mercy becomes that gift that recognizes the need of others because of what God has shown us. That mercy is defined by one commentator as the outward manifestation of pity and compassion in kindly action towards another's misery. What a wonderful definition. It is an outward manifestation of pity and compassion in kindly action toward another's misery. That is what we are commanded to be about. And because of it, and because of those who will show no mercy, they will be shown no mercy by God. And all of this, beloved, is tying us back to verses 1 to 7. All of this is connecting us to this idea of partiality and of prejudice. Of fulfilling the law of the king, the royal law, the law of love, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That you would be acting according to the law of liberty so as to understand and to love all people and not show partiality. And then James reverses in the concluding clause of verse 13 and gives us yet another contrast where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who shows mercy will not be judged mercilessly as the one who has shown no mercy. Rather, as one commentator notes, the triumph of mercy is based on the atonement that is wrought at the cross. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done on Calvary that the victory of mercy is brought forward for he who was most merciful to us in doing all things for us, which never could we do for ourselves. The law of liberty and the royal law are the new covenant laws brought forward by Christ. And in these, mercy is shown. And it's not that mercy is the one virtue by which everything else moves judgment away. But it is the one element that removes prejudice, removes this potential for stumbling that sometimes is not even seen in us. And we don't understand. Because when we are acting to consider others in all cases, when we are considering others higher than ourselves, when we are loving our neighbor, when we are doing to others as we would like them to do to us, then is brought forward mercy. Then is removed partiality and prejudice. And as those abiding by these laws, we desire to keep all of God's laws. And therein, the action, our actions are those of honor and not error. Prejudice is a dark and horrible blight upon mankind. A sin for which one will be convicted. It must be eradicated from the life of every believer. James has shown how those living under the law of the king and the law of liberty will eradicate this sin of partiality and prejudice. What a joy it will be as God's people grow and as the impact of God's church saturates our world to show the love that we know because he first loved us.
May God be pleased to implant his word into our hearts that we would bear much fruit for his glory.